Hi, Nipi. Hi, Nipi. Hi, Nipi. Hidi Kalagiwi. Waziregi. Wagad Nakshana. Wajaniwina. Jankishina. Hidi Kalagiwina. Hanach Nipi. Arajarawi. Piachji. Wow, Nakshana. Hamte e ham hidama harmihe ham jay. We hap wake cover a noop jay. Hidi Kalagjawi. Good morning from the land of eleven nations. Or as everyone else calls it, Wisconsin. I am doing fantastic, and I sincerely hope everyone else is as well on this 4th of July weekend. What well, was so much going on in the world today, and it seems that there is always so much going on in the world today. I was thinking that maybe we could spend a couple of minutes together and just shut out all of the noise from the outside world. And just focus on our little piece of it here for a couple of minutes. First off... I just want to thank each and every one of you who spend some of your valuable time listening to this podcast. Time being the second most precious gift that our Creator has bestowed upon us. It is of the utmost importance that I value your commitment and provide you, the listening audience, with the highest quality entertainment that we can provide. I really enjoy listening and reading the feedback that all of you provide this podcast. One of the things that I think that we should really get better at as a people is publicly debating ideas, discussing their merits, both pro and con. By sharing our thoughts, we expose what we know and don't know, and this helps shape our arguments and counter-arguments. And this also offers people a chance to supply information that we'd lacked when our opinions were formed. Now, without your thoughts and arguments, I'm just an old man standing in the woods at midnight, shaking his bony little fist to the sky and screaming into the darkness. It's both silly and useless. So, take what is offered to you here from this podcast, mull it over, look at it from different angles, hold it up to the light and examine it for weaknesses. But don't just listen passively. React and call. Write, express yourself, and voice your opinion publicly. And remember, it's not just me that needs to hear from you. It's your president and your legislators. Call, text, or email your thoughts, opinions, and questions to them. How can they address your concerns if they don't know about them? And, oh, by the way, if you feel that they are doing a wonderful job, tell them. Remember, they are our relatives and they are our people. Now, if you want to get in touch with me, call me up if you have my number. I'm in my office darn near 24-7. And if I don't answer, leave a message and I will get back to you. Speaking on a phone with me doesn't get your clock ticking? Fear not, fellow traveler. We can still get in contact. My email address is moneyklucksick at gmail.com. That's M-A-N-I-K-A-K-S-I-K at gmail.com. Send your thoughts, questions, accusations, concerns, and I'll get back to you as soon as, as, soon as I can. ASAP, if not sooner. Now, we are also available on many social media sites. The Chipotle Facebook page is something where we post original thoughts and also post interesting um, articles from others. We're also available on uh, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Not going to lie, I haven't been keeping up with my social media sites. Summer's taken a toll on my social media updates. Too much grass to cut, pools to clean, cars to wash... Actually laying a lot in the sun, too. I will make an extra effort to get back in the game here in the second half of the year. So um, stay with us. 
The legislature announced a change of policy, or perhaps they just clarified a policy that was incorrectly presented. I say that because all the old Facebook posts concerning this issue have been replaced by these new posts. Now, our children will be receiving $1,200 quarterly, and this money will be deposited directly into Children's Trust Fund account. $4,800 will be the total amount deposited into individual Children's Trust accounts this year. I think this is an improvement on simply giving the money to their caregivers, but once again, there is an elephant in the room that is being politely ignored. All the information that the legislature is sharing with us, pointing to the fact that our gaming facilities are doing better than the projections, and the legislature budgets on the more conservative projections. Now, instead of a per cap payment of $3,000 per quarter, or $12,000 per annum, we now receive $900 per month, or $10,600 per annum. Now, this is explained away as a tax savings for the nation's citizens. Now, if you do the math and place a 12% tax on your per cap, you see that basically it's a push. However, if you're a senior living on a fixed income, this is a savings. So kudos to the legislature for this uh, bit of financial machination. Now, the elephant in the room that I'm referring to, however, is our children. In a previous podcast, we discussed the Children's Trust Fund and how $0 have been placed into the account since May of 2020. We kicked around different ideas as to what to do with the Children's Trust Fund. One idea brought forth was to end the Children's Trust Fund as it was thought to be injurious to our children's psyche, as all it did was to put the, their focus on receiving this large check and then living recklessly until their funds were exhausted. The argument was countered by the fact that not all our children squandered this money. Some of them used the monies in exactly the manner that we wished all our children would do so and why the accounts were set up. I had brought forth that our legislature had in fact stopped funding our children's trust fund for three years and had accomplished what some people wanted without making it a public policy. Now, the legislature, in their updated for clarity posting on Facebook, have stated that our children will receive $1,200 per quarter or $4,800 this fiscal year, and this sum will be deposited into their trust fund accounts. Question. Who decided to give our children short shrift? Before the Wuhan shutdown, our children received dollar-for-dollar monies equal to adults for their trust fund. Coming out of the shutdown and after three years, why has the legislature come to the conclusion that our children are now worth $7,200 less than before? I don't remember hearing anything about this cut in benefits to our children. Let me be clear. My children received their monies upon their 18th birthday. None of my grandchildren are Ho-Chung citizens, so I do not have a dog in this fight directly. My extended Ho-Chung family is affected, though. So, in effect, I do have a dog in this fight, and I would like to be heard on this issue. What I want is clarity on the policy concerning our children. If our gaming facilities are performing above projections and the legislature is cutting monies to program programs, Shouldn't we be doing well enough to continue funding our children at pre-Wuhan levels? As I stated before, I am willing to be convinced as to the necessity of graduated payments or no payments to our children, but I think this policy should be, should be brought before the people. Now, none of my legislators have contacted me and explained their position on this issue. I want to say an overwhelming majority of us have email capabilities, 
So the legislature sharing their motivation on an issue concerning our children would and should be a slam dunk. But I guess they're all too short to dunk. The legislature has a public relations department. So in addition to clarifying the financial distribution to the Children's Trust Fund, they could have explained why our children are now worth $7,200 less than they were before the shutdown. The legislature was able to clarify the issue on Facebook as to how the payments were to be made. What they were unable to explain is the discrepancy on monies our children are now receiving. There were numerous comments on Facebook with many people thanking the legislature for this accommodation to their children. But we still don't have any explanation on why there were zero deposits for three years and now their donation is only $400 this fiscal year. Is it being discussed on the eventuality of our making our children's trust funds whole? That would be a huge ask for the legislature and the nation. But don't pretend this never happened. We're adults. We all lived through the Wuhan pandemic and a subsequent shutdown. We all know no one prepares for this type of calamity. But, you know, spend the time. Show us the math. Show us the books. Explain to us why we sacrificed our children's financial future. Going forward, I don't want the legislature alone to make these decisions for our children. I understand that we elect 13 individuals and a president to operate our nation and make our laws, budget our finances, and make decisions that will affect all our lives. But our children's future is too important to be placed in the hands of 13 people. No, our children's financial future should be publicly debated by the entire nation. If in the end we decide to 86 the Children's Trust Fund, or we substantially limit the funds contribute to it annually, cool. But I want all of us, the entire Ho-Chunk Nation, to debate this and decide. Are our children to be allowed to share equally in per cap or general welfare payments or not? If not, why? Do we propose to give them extra benefits when they turn 18? Free education to any university or trade school of their choice? A house? A car? Nothing? They receive no extra benefits as children, and when they turn 18, we will allow them to opt in to per cap or general welfare payments? When our elders began per cap, they said we will all share in this benefit. Now things have changed. How come? Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we have are lucky to have Deidre Mitchell, President and CEO of Waisea Beck Development Company, LLC. That is the non-gaming arm of the Notawasepi Huron Band of the Potawatomi Indians. And uh, she's been at her position now since April of 2016. Good evening, ma'am. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Oh, it's an honor on my part. Um, before we begin... One thing we like to do is we like to know exactly kind of who we're talking to. So if you have a couple of seconds, could you kind of give us a brief uh, introduction on um, who you are, who your family is, where you grew up, that type of thing. Just let us know who you are. Yeah, sure. Um, I was born and raised in Northeastern Ohio. Uh, My parents, Jack and Linda Mitchell, are from um, Northeastern Southern Ohio. 
And um, we grew up in the country and a very wholesome upbringing. We did a lot of camping on the weekend. And um, they taught me a lot about hard work, uh, about nature, about honesty, about dedication. And I'm extremely grateful for the upbringing that I had. I, my mother is very sick right now, so I want to say I'm dedicating this to her, trying not to cry. Um, but I'm just very, very grateful for both of them. They um, raised me well. I graduated from high school and went to Kent State University. I have a undergraduate degree in um, biology and conservation. And everybody laughs when we say that because that's not where I ended up, right? But I really do think that science, biology, conservation, nature in general teaches you that everything is connected. And you, if you upset the balance of one component part, you are going to have consequences intended and not intended kind of throughout your ecosystem. And I don't believe that um, business is any different. So completed my degree and then um, I had never traveled when I was a child um, on an airplane anyway. We traveled, like I said, camping, but never on an airplane. And out of college, I took a job with an emergency response company cleaning up environmental messes um, throughout the United States and the world, as it turns out. We were required to have three weeks of clothing in our car at all times because they would just come to your desk and say, here's bus tickets, or excuse me, plane tickets. We're going to shuttle you to the airport and off you would go. So I'd been there for three days, never been on a plane. And they came in with tickets to Goose Bay, Labrador. And I was being shuttled up there to clean up a PCB spill up there. And so that was the first time that I traveled. And I didn't know where Goose Bay, Labrador was at the time. So I had to find that out first and then figure out how to get through an international airport, let alone an airport of any kind. So that kind of launched my travel bug. And um, I've lived all over the United States. Um, I've lived in Alaska. I've lived out in the Pacific Rim, um, Guam, Indonesia, um, uh, Midway Island. I was there for three years the, where the Battle of Midway took place. So um, I spent 20, 25 years doing that. And I started in the field in the white suit and the respirator digging up dirt moved my way up into um, quality control. I ran an online, excuse me, on-site um, chemistry lab, moved into project management and then program management um, throughout my career in the environmental industry. So um, during that time also, I started my own business doing health and safety consulting and um um, project management consulting to the environmental industry. We did a lot of work on military bases. That was my second business that I'd started. I had started one before that, just uh, didn't didn't go so well. It was my first one, didn't know what I was doing. That one went better. I owned it for about 10 years and uh, ended up selling that um, 10 years later. So fast forward 20 years, I'm working in the environmental industry um, I had several companies or individuals approach me about helping them start 
businesses. So I always did that kind of on the side. So by the time I arrived at WDC, that would have been my, my, at Wissahabek, that would have been my 10th startup. And so I developed my business philosophies and management doing that as well as working in the field that I loved and excelled at. So I ended up in Alaska. I lived in Anchorage. I was there three years and I moved up there with Jacobs Engineering to manage their formerly used defense sites cleanup program. So I got to visit many places in Alaska. I'm very fortunate to have been able to see that state um, in a, a lot of their remote remote areas. And um, that's where I became acquainted with tribes, Alaska Native Corporations. We at Jacobs were a mentor to a protege tribe. So that's where I began to learn about um, federal contracting practices and advantages that tribes have and um, about their culture and how they do business. And so from that point forward, um, I worked with tribes, whether it was at Jacobs, I moved back to the lower 48. I did some consulting, working with several different tribes, helping them get economic development launched or their federal practice launched or starting new businesses. So um, uh, in 2015, I think it was, or it might've been 2014, I interviewed with the uh, Nottawasepi tribe for their economic development. They were just getting started. And after the interview process, they did offer me the job, but I wrote them a like a five-page white paper, and I said, I don't think you're ready yet. Me being a consultant, I wouldn't feel right stepping into this role because I don't believe that you can have the right foundation laid and you have a clear idea where you want to go. Um, I suggest you do a little more work in that avenue and then seek a full-time CEO. Otherwise, I don't think it'll be a wise, you know, use of your funds. So they did that to their credit. Um, about a year later, they called me and said, I think we're, we're there. Would you be interested in interviewing again? And I did. And that's how I started at uh, Wasayabek Development Company. So that's my story. That was quite a bold move, don't you think, to um, <laughs> let them know, I don't think you guys are ready. Come back when uh, you are. And maybe I'll think about it. it, it you know, I, I hadn't chuckled to myself because I thought, well, I just lost that job. And it wasn't so much like a, it was it was just not I wanted to do the right thing. I'd seen so many tribes fail and be taken advantage of by people that I just really wanted to do, do the right thing. And, you know, they had a choice. They could have come back and said, nope, we, we want to hire somebody and you're the one. You know, we could have had that conversation. But to their credit. They took what I said and considered it and um, did a little more planning and talking. And um, so it all worked out. But yeah, it was it was an unusual situation. Let's say that. <laughs> right off the bat, how did you get a buy in from the nation? Um, I don't know if you know anything about uh, indigenous politics, but it's it, it's uh, it's down and dirty at times. So how did you get them to follow your lead into what you thought was best practice? Yeah, politics are a lot. And um, I had, when I, when I came into this position, there was a failed business venture and the board and the council did not see it the same way. So that relationship was pretty fractured at that point. So I really considered it my first job 
and we really focused on that the whole first year of getting everybody to agree this is how we should do things. We did a lot of discussing the Harvard project, which is a pretty good roadmap for how to do economic development in Indian country. And by pretty good, I mean very good. Um, And one of the tenets of that is keeping governance matters, right? So keeping politics separated from business decisions. So as we were talking about our strategic plan, we were also getting everybody to agree this is how we're going to do business. And there are some very fundamental decisions we need to make. And one of them, to my council's credit, they said, we're getting a board, we're electing or we're seating a board of qualified individuals. We need to make them responsible for making good business decisions. And we need to let them do their job. And then if there is some kind of political overlay that needs to happen, which is rare because we're trying to keep them separated, then the council will weigh in at that point. So it's just really a lot. Um, I was able to share a lot of experiences that I had, um, whether it was in Indian country or outside of Indian country, business best practice. As I said, I've seen, I've seen a lot of tribes fail and a lot of those reasons are very foundational. Their governance isn't set up correctly. Leadership matters. I mean, these are all tenants of the, the Harvard project. Sovereignty matters. Leadership matters. Governance matters. You've mentioned uh, the Harvard project uh, a couple of times now. And mm-hmm. um, you lectured there, did you not, at one point? I did, just this past March. Um. What was that like, bringing back all of your experience and showing what their philosophy can do to people who want to know what it can do? It was amazing. I mean, Harvard is just such an institution that I was very honored that our group had pulled together to be able to enable me to go there and talk about our success. So it was just really amazing. Um I really credit Harvard for their interest and their leadership in Indian country, their their research into that. And um, there were just a lot of really good questions. There were, of course, people that were involved in their indigenous communities, whether it be economic development or otherwise. But there were also people in the audience that just wanted to know, that were just really wanted to know, you know, how tribes operate, what's best practice, what's been our experience. And so it was very, um, it was very affirming that we were on the right track. And I think it was very, um, it was good for uh, Eric Henson is the um, leader of that graduate group that I spoke to. And I believe, you know, he really appreciated hearing that we have applied the principles and they are working. So just, again, more kind of validation of that study, and these are the right um, tenants to follow as you're pursuing economic development. I noticed that you've gone out and uh, spoken to uh, different groups. Um, is this uh, the foundation of your, of your talks, your speeches um, in Indian country, that this is something that should be pursued? It always plays into it. Um, it really depends on what the group is asking. I mean, I've had tribes ask um, for a group to come and talk about 
how to set up their governance. You know, um, why does it matter if our board all turns over at the same time or our tribal council all turns over at the same time? I've had them ask just what works for us. Um, I've had different tribes ask, you know, if we're just a smaller tribe, we don't have the resources you have. How could we go about economic development? So it really depends on what they're interested in me um, talking about. And if I have any insight into that, I'm always happy to share. And sometimes I don't know because I haven't walked in their shoes. And I'll, I'll say so if I don't. One of the things I was really kind of impressed with was that you um, launched a non-gaming tribal economic impact study in 2019. And you had a lot of buy-in. You had nine of the 12 tribes in Michigan uh, participate. And I think it was looking at my 38 non-gaming corporations, companies that participated in this um, study. What was the goal of the study? And uh, was it successful? It was successful. And um, it it's, uh, I want to get, Kurt Trevan, he is the former CEO at Gun Lake Investments, and to Troy Clay, the former CEO at Mino Bamatsin, because this was really kind of a brainchild of sitting around the table saying, we really need to be viewed by the state and business partners as um, valid, responsible businesses. And when you say tribes, everybody thinks of gaming. They don't even know that we do economic development. The other part of that was we were and still continue to have uh, challenges with the Michigan uh, Minority Supplier Diversity Council in certifying us as minority owned. So we all had steps that we were taking to kind of tackle both of those problems. And I raised my hand and said, I will do the economic impact study. And so, um, you know, we really work together to get buy-in from the tribes from Michigan so that everybody that wanted to could participate. And I think it, I have had a lot of feedback that, you know, wow, we didn't know tribes did all this. We didn't know they did more than gaming. And I didn't know this one owned a construction company. And I didn't know that this one had a business consulting company. And I didn't know that this one was involved in federal contracting. So it was really to raise awareness to say we have, we as Michigan tribes have a, a big impact on the Michigan economy. And there are tribes all over the nation that are doing the same. So I think we accomplished that. Um, I feel good about what we accomplished. I'm hoping um, we can repeat that here in the next uh, year or two and see how everybody's doing, because I would suspect that there's been a lot of growth. One of the things you've mentioned a couple of times I'm really interested in is um, federal contracting. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that we fail to look at in our nation is uh, the Small Business Administration 8A programs. Mm -hmm. um, is this something that um, your nation has looked into, your company has looked into, and are they exploiting this um yeah, you know, we have three of our companies that are 8A certified, and we got certified for the first company, I think it was in 2018. And so that's a nine-year run for each company, so we have some runway left. The others were subsequent to that. Um, we do federal contracting in operations and maintenance or facility support. 
um, that has a kind of property management com- component to it. We do federal contracting in professional services, so with the banking industry and the um, the um, Federal Reserve um, agencies like that. We do um, environmental work and we do IT work. So, um, and then we also do um, manufacturing, engineering research. Um, for the federal government, we do a lot of specialty engine research and, um, we've been focusing on drone engines, but really that company focuses on putting more power in smaller packages so that it increases, um, the warfighters, um, range. So, um, yes, we are participating in that and, um, we are uh, hitting our stride there, I think. Um, that was one of the big talking points. And one of those first things that we all had to agree on was, are we going to pursue federal contracting? And then it isn't as easy as getting your 8A and then people come knocking on your door for federal, you know, giving you federal contracts. It, that's just not how it works. You hear those stories, but I know you don't know if those were the early days or but that's not how it works now. It is an investment and it is an investment in just getting the 8A and then it is an investment in the people who know how to do that well. And there's a lead time for most of those projects of two years. So you're making that investment for two years before you start to see returns on it. So that all leads back to why consistency in your board and your council are important because you can't get two years into something and then change direction, get two years into something, change direction and expect anything to grow legs and, and uh, reach maturity. Recently, um, well, within the last couple of years, we had the COVID shutdown. Mm-hmm. And are you, is Weiss, well, say a back, are they diversified enough so that they withstood that and versus the gaming arm of the nation? Um, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, we did. We did well at WBC at Wasayabek. Um the as you know, uh, casinos all over the nation were shut down. Ours was no was not excluded from that. And then um, with Sayabek, all of our companies continued to operate. All of our companies were considered essential or could operate uh, remotely. <coughs> and so we saw very little impact from COVID. In fact, we probably saw the lingering effects more than in, in the kind of throes of the COVID pandemic where we suffered from the labor shortages and the the supply chain, you know, shortages just struggled with that. But we really had very little impact to our economic development corporations. Now, when we make acquisitions, we have a whole set of criteria that we evaluate and we do due diligence. And one of those criteria are to look at, will this business do better in an up economy, a down economy, or does it, you know, stay kind of, steady state. So for federal contracting, for example, that stays pretty steady state. Um, Our business consulting company that does turnaround work um, helps businesses that are in trouble. That's going to do better in a down economy. Our uh, manufacturing company that uh, focuses on manufacturing in the they manufacture for things like ATVs and that kind of thing, that's going to do better in an up economy. Um, so we look at that. And so we try to balance our portfolio, even within our 
our own uh, portfolio so that we don't suffer these big swings, you know, as time moves on and we have these micro and macroeconomic changes. One thing that um, I kind of wanted to know is when you started in 2016, how has uh, WC grown um, overall? Um, I was looking at some of the uh, notes and it says you started with three employees. Um, I gather from your success that you have one or two more uh, to help you out now. We do. We have we just created some really interesting challenges, but so far we're we're weathering them all. We uh, have grown since um, really 2017 because it took us about a year to you know get our duckies in a row. So we all agreed and we're pulling in the same direction. Um, we grew from three people to we're about 450 now, um, and that includes project work across the United States, um, coast to coast, the location on the reservation at the time. We've since moved our headquarters into Grand Rapids in business district. Um, we had negative revenue. We were losing money from that failed business venture that I mentioned, and today, year in 2022, we ended up at about $75.4 million, and um, we have a goal to be at $125 million at the end of this year. What, you just mentioned that you guys are coast to coast. Is your w, uh, WDC, do they work in all 50 states and uh, internationally? Not all 50 yet. <laughs> We've got, uh, we have offices in Albany, Oregon, um, Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, throughout a couple of different businesses in Michigan, um, Morgantown, West Virginia, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, Huntsville, Alabama. Um, so throughout the United, throughout the United States, I predict that by the end of the year, we will also be working internationally on federal contracts. That's fantastic. Um, one other thing, um, what do you have mentorships for, um, tribal members or are they already working with the uh, WDC yeah we have a we have a couple of things we have um, so this is a very important point that economic development companies need to agree on and if you look at the Harvard project and one of their recommendations is you have to focus on profitable companies first and then focus on um, creating tribal member jobs and career development because if you don't have a profitable company it's not going to matter what you do for job creation so we do have tribal members working we do have some different programs one of those is called the leadership exploration and development program and that enables um not only our tribal members but members from uh, this is for just our tribal members to come into the company and um, look at all of our subsidiaries and visit them and be able to connect with the leadership and talk about what would I do if I wanted to work in this company um, and be qualified for this position. So um, we have regular contact with everywhere from the youth to older um, tribal members that just want to know more or want to know how to kind of shape their career path to um, get into one of the companies. We do have a tribal hiring preference, and that includes NHBP tribal members, but also members from any tribe, 
as well as preference candidates. And we say that they must be minimally qualified to um, to be employed. And that is because we have to co- we have to concentrate on profitability first. And so how that would work is if you had a tribal member apply for a job and you had a non-tribal member apply that was maybe more qualified, but the tribal member is qualified, we would select the tribal member and then we would help develop some of those skills. So hopefully when we get a little further down the road and have more profitability after we're funding our own acquisition fund, we will be able to set aside the dollars that we can do formal training programs and that kind of thing. But right now, as we're focused on profitability, it's really essential that anyone we hire is qualified to do the job we need them to do. And if that is a tribal member, we certainly want to give them preference and every opportunity to do so. Partnerships. Um, I think there's a couple nations uh, on your side of the lake that were involved in a huge partnership um, to buy commercial real estate, I think it was, in mm-hmm. Grand Rapids. Um, was uh, was Sayabek involved in that? I think it was Gun Lake that was involved also. Is that something yes. that you're pursuing? Yes, that is um, Gun Lake and us with Sayabek that we partnered to buy McKay Tower. And then we have also partnered in a... Um, investment for a trucking company called Zip Express and Green Transportation. So we have an operating company partnership as well as a um, commercial real estate um, partnership that we went together. Is that something you're going to be pursuing going forward or is that just a case-by-case basis? Something that we're interested in. It's always um, tricky because uh, we want to make sure that any tribe that we partner with has the same kind of stability that we do so that we don't run into differences of opinion down the road due to changes in leadership um, and then has the same goals. But definitely something we're interested in, definitely something we always keep an eye out for. Um, And as I said, we've um, partnered in uh, the Zip Express trucking company as well as McKay Tower here in downtown Grand Rapids. So, One of the things that uh, interested me in uh, something you're doing is uh, your Tribal Talks podcast. Now, it was short-lived, but are you going to um, reinstitute? Are you guys going to re- restart this up again? Because um, I think it were five, uh, five shows, and they were really, really interesting. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And yes, we actually just had a meeting about that this week um, to get those reinvigorated. And those really sprang out of what I felt to be a a gap in information out there. We all know that RES is a great um, conference every year. And there are others like NAFOA and multiple economic development conferences around the country. But they have a hard time reaching and giving that really meaty information about exactly how do you do this? And what if you run up against this particular challenge? You know, they're speaking to a very, very broad audience. So it's hard to kind of get mm, focused on what it is that everyone's, you know, pain points are. So um, we came up with the idea that we 
really wanted to have those conversations, try to answer those questions and be a resource for all of the questions that come up as you're pursuing economic development because they're, you know, range from everything about how to best structure your legal entities, how to get alignment around your strategic plan, how to make sure your governance is set up correctly, how to do due diligence on an opportunity, you know, on and on and on it goes. So that's the gap we're hoping to fill. And yes, stay tuned. Um, I think you will see some new material in January where we we will uh, continue to roll that out. All right. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time and the weather is playing havoc with our uh, interview tonight. <laughs> um, so I would like to give you an opportunity for if to just uh, speak your mind, uh, say what you want to say, sell whatever you want to sell, promote whatever you want to promote, and um, just give you the floor for the next couple of minutes. Um, floor is yours. Please speak up. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on your podcast. I listened to yours, several of yours as well, and I think it's a very interesting topics. You have very interesting guests, so thank you for that. And, you know, I would just say that there's just tremendous opportunity in Indian country for economic development, and whether that's on your own or with partners, there's just a lot of opportunity. And I do think that embracing seven generations, seven grandfather teachings, just a different culture enriches and enhances those opportunities. And it can be done. So I want to offer encouragement. I know that tribal politics often enter into things and gets in the way and it can be frustrating. There is a way to do it differently. There really is in a way that is going to produce the benefit that everybody wants. So um, I'm always available. Our staff is always available. We do have a consulting company called DWH that has a tribal practice um, that have helped with strategic planning, um, succession planning, due diligence on an opportunity that you might be looking at. Um, There are multiple sources out there, but I think I just want to say to those tribal leaders to settle in, pick a plan, make sure your plan is sound, that it has a lot of due diligence behind it, a lot of research, a lot of financial modeling, and then stick to the plan and it will produce results because there's just a magic about Indian country that produces results above what can normally be expected if everybody pulls in the same direction and kind of holds the line steady. Well, thank you very much. Um, how can, uh, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, um, can they reach you through a, a website or something? Yes, our, our, our um, website is wasayabek.com. So that's W-A-S-E-Y-A-B-E-K.com. And then there's also a, um email that's just info, so I-N-F-O at wasayabek.com and um, any inquiries or messages can get routed um, through there and happy to to take one and take all. Real quick, um, what does wasayabek mean? Wasayabek means a new day's light. And I thought that was just really 
appropriate for what the Nottawasepi tribe was trying to do. Um, so it means a new day's light, and it has seven rays in the logo, standing for the seven grandfather teachings. And um, yeah, it's pretty special. <laughs> well, thank you very much, uh, Deidre Mitchell, President and CEO of Wasaya Beck Development Company. Um, I'd like to have you on again sometime in a couple of years, maybe a year or so, to see how uh, you're developing. And um, thank you very much, and enjoy the rest of your evening. Yeah, thank you, Shelby, and I love that. And again, thank you for having me on your program. Thank you. Good evening. Akiri Wida, hi, Pete. First and foremost, the Ho Chunk Nation is a family business. Oh, sure, we hide behind elections and we follow NIGA and state gaming regulations. In the end, no, it's a family business masquerading as a sovereign nation. Every once in a while, we threaten to change, but we're very comfortable in our skin. And as long as no one really rocks the boat, we'll keep doing what we're doing. Prime example, the Ho-Chunk Nation is one of the few nations left that still have their business department embedded in their government. After threatening to separate business from government for 30 years or so, we established Chapter 17 Corporation. And now there's already talk of auditing it and shutting it down. Here's a thought I had about the Ho-Chunk Nation's visceral feelings about the separation of business and government and entrepreneurship within the Ho-Chunk Nation. It's obvious we're scared and ignorant. This is why we are so dependent on gaming and stringent regulations. The business of gaming suits us to a T. The rules and regulations are clearly defined, and there is little wiggle room, but overall, rules must be adhered to, and reports must be finished and filed within prescribed deadlines. We are all so comfortable when we know where we stand inside this hierarchy. Once this is stripped away from us, however, we all get a little weak in the knees. Why is this? One reason, and this is the ignorance I referred to earlier, we do not come from a long line of entrepreneurs. Our people are not known as business starters. We don't throw caution to the wind and follow entrepreneurial dreams. I remember growing up, my relatives never missed work. Well, the ones who worked. The ones who didn't work, well, that's a different story. But my relatives never missed work. They could go to powwow or go to meetings, travel to four to five hours to get home, unload the car, clean up, crash hard, and then get up the next morning and head to work. I remember doing this almost my entire youth. You knew the people who worked. You knew the people who went to school. They would be proudly pointed out to us. Those were the people to emulate. These people were respected, and they should have been. They took care of their families, and they still carried on their traditional obligations. But in all that time, I never remembered anybody being held up as an entrepreneur. When I spent my time in the care of the Illinois Department of Family Services, I remember listening to discussion among the adults. They talked about labor costs. They talked about how to best utilize useless workers or fire them. They were figuring out sales production, sales to production lead times, the cost of purchasing equipment, the state of the local economy. Now, different societies have different priorities, so it's not really that strange that we prioritize survival, maintaining what we had. It hadn't been that many years ago that we were fighting for our just day-to-day -day survival and political existence, but that was yesterday. Today, we are stagnant. We don't have to be, 
but we're comfortable here. We get our 40 hours, complain about our health insurance and coverage, complain about Wi-Fi, complain about all of our payments we have to make every month, and how little we get paid. It's silly, but even with an education and starting a little further up the economic ladder, the problems are the same. Your house is a little better and your car is a little nicer, but basically it's the same problems, different hours. Now the answer to a lot of our problems is staring us in the face. You start your own business. You work the hours you want to work and your income is dependent on your idea, your work ethic, and the timing of your idea's implementation. And yeah, I had my own business for 25 years. Grant Heatsink. Look it up. So even if a slack-jawed, knuckle-dragon, mouth-breathing troglodyte such as myself can start a business, anybody can. And here's a little factoid to toss in the mix. You are the sum of the five people you hang around with. You hang around with reprobates? Guess what? You hang around with factory workers? Guess what? You hang around with entrepreneurs? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Here's another thing. You spend all your time dragging your children around to your business operations, to meetings. You bring these people to your home and you talk business while you're playing bags, building a porch, fixing your car. Your children come to realize soon that this is a reality that people live. In my wife's family, five of the seven children had their own businesses. Why bring this up? Because it's a mental thing. People who can only see 40 hours a week or 60 hours a week working overtime for someone else are shortchanging their lives. Why are we so prepared to give 48 hours of our life every week to build someone else's dream? With the education we have, with the financial backing of our nation, with the work ethic that we obviously possess, why are we so scared to create our own futures? No one wants to work for the nation at minimum wage. That's why we have over 150 unfilled positions. But we still only have a handful of entrepreneurs. This independent thinking begets independent thinking. We get more entrepreneurs in the nation. Our nation won't be scared when the subject of separation of business and government is talked about. Because we'll all know what's being talked about. What our returns should be, what our costs should be, how much time should be spent on each project or jobs. Why, is, why are we so frightened about separating business from government? Because we're a family business and nobody wants to see family members in the street because they are incapable or unwilling to pull their own weight. Hanach pin nara jiwina, jige hani chawigi, ira kikara, un uyanje.